Historic places and resources come in all shapes and sizes. On Maryland's eastern shore, the Chesapeake Bay Maritime Museum preserves and restores a wide variety of historic resources, including historic boats and ships. Today's guest, Pete Lesher, the chief curator of the museum, is assisting in the latest restoration project of a Chesapeake Bay nine-log bug-eye known as the Edna E. Lockwood. You don't know what a bug-eye is? Well, batten down the hatches and check your port and starboard as we set sail for this week's PreserveCast. From Preservation Maryland Studios in the historic podcast district of Baltimore, this is PreserveCast. This is Nick Redding. You're listening to PreserveCast, and today we are joined by Pete Lesher, who is the chief curator at the Chesapeake Bay Maritime Museum, where he served on the staff since 1991 and now oversees museum collections, exhibitions, and programs. He graduated from Lafayette College, holds a master's in history from Columbia University, and studied maritime history at Mystic Seaport's Summer Munson Institute for American Maritime Studies. Active in his community, Pete is a member of the Talbot County Council, chairs the St. Michael's Historic District Commission, and serves on the boards of the Maryland Humanities Council, Council of American Maritime Museums, and the Maryland Heritage Areas Authority. In his spare time, he sails, taking particular pleasure in his role as a jib tender on the 1882 Chesapeake Bay sailing log canoe Island Bird, which we'll have to hear about at some point in this interview. Pete, it is a pleasure to have you with us here today on PreserveCast. Thanks so much, Nick. So you have a really interesting background. We have to get to, I don't, I'm not sure if everybody listening knows what a jib tender is. So I, I, that was in the, in the bio there. We'll have to get that at some point. Um, but tell us a little bit about yourself. How did you, I guess, obviously a strong passion for maritime history, but where does that come from? Where'd you grow up? Were you always enamored with history? Was this always going to be where you went? What's the story here? Well, I, I, I do. I was always, I was always enamored with, with history, with, with historic sites. Uh, what my, what my family always did for vacations was to go around to, uh, to historic sites, to national parks, to particularly any place was, that was free because I was the oldest of five children. So free places counted for a lot, but, um, I, I got that bug from early on and, and, and remember going around, uh, uh, climbing forts from, from Fort St. Augustine to, uh, to Fort McHenry and historic houses and on and on. And, and, uh, and did you grow up in Maryland? Is that where you're from? I, I, I was born and raised in, in Pennsylvania. Uh, I'm, I have deep Maryland roots. My grandfather was a maritime historian, so that's where the boat part comes in. But okay. no, I grew up in land. I grew up in landlocked Pennsylvania and uh, started spending summers with my grandfather, who was native of, of, of Eastern Maryland. And he was a maritime historian. He was. He, uh, sort of on, on the side. He was, a, he was a, a marine engineer. He researched and wrote a bit about uh, maritime history, particularly Maryland shipbuilding. Uh, and I got, the, I got the bug from him. And so you knew when you went to school that eventually you wanted to work in this field somehow or one way or another. Well, not quite. I uh, I went to school thinking I was going to be an academic historian, but I was working I was working fun summer jobs at historic sites, including the Chesapeake Bay Maritime Museum, and finishing up my master's degree when uh, when my predecessor left. And so, by dumb luck, I ended up in this field. 
sometimes sometimes it's the best plan. Yeah, it's a reoccurring theme here on PreserveCast. A lot of people don't expect to end up in the positions that they're in. And then in situations like your own, obviously you fell in love with it because as we mentioned in the bio, you've been at the museum since 1991. So either you're in love with it or you just you can't figure out how to get out of St. Michael's. And I, I imagine it's because <laughs> you're in love with it. So tell us about, like, paint the picture because, you know, people listening to PreserveCast all across the country, many of them have never been to the chesapeake bay maritime museum what what's the campus look like what's the history of the organization the scale of the of the work what do you preserve tell us what people what you think people should know about the chesapeake bay maritime museum sure this this museum was founded on the waterfront in saint michael's back in 1965 uh the local county historic society picked up a couple of waterfront historic houses and an old uh, a couple of of old boats floating exhibits that they tied up in front of it and it grew into uh, a campus-style, multi-building waterfront exhibit with a working shipyard and uh, 12 exhibition buildings. And so it's, it's both indoors and outdoors in, wrapped around the edge of part of, of St. Michael's Harbor, which is a, a great little sailing destination, a convenient distance from, from Annapolis, uh, a good day trip for a lot of folks coming across the bay. And so it's it, it it is a destination, and part of what makes it a destination is is the museum's presence here, which tells the story not just of St. Michael's but of the entire Chesapeake Bay. Um, and is it the largest maritime museum in the state? I imagine it would be. I, I guess by 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 most measures it is. Yes, uh, it, staff and budget and and uh, acreage uh, were spread out across uh, eighteen acres along this along this uh, St. Michael's waterfront, this, this very horizontal, very flat eastern shore landscape. And so you have, a, 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 I mean, you're the curator there, so chief curator, I should say. So you have, a, what's the size of the collection? What's the scale of the collection? Obviously, you have working boats all the way down to what? Well, uh, from yeah, down to sailmakers' needles. Right. <laughs> um, but if if you count historic photographs and manuscripts and oral histories, uh, we've got something like seventy three thousand objects cataloged here. Of those, ten thousand are three dimensional. Of those, ninety are watercraft. Uh, and of those ninety watercraft, uh, we maintain, uh, depending on how you count, uh, ten or twelve of them afloat in the water. And so, yeah, I was going to ask about that. So you have 10 or 12 that are afloat in the water. I imagine that there's a lot of challenges associated with keeping a historic resource like that actually in working condition. And, and what's the, is there an ethic about that? I mean, because you have to keep it continually upgrading it and, and fixing it. Do you lose the historic right. fabric? Right. What, where, where do you guys come down on that? Well, if if you're dealing with with historic furniture and you know it, it falls down the steps and it, uh, in, into a bunch of splinters, you pick up every single splinter and you glue them all back together right the way they were, and you preserve every little bit of it. With when you get to historic house preservation, you understand that some elements are going to deteriorate, and you piece you piece things back together. We accept some replacement of of parts, particularly when exposed to the weather. You know, roofs roofs need to be replaced. When it comes to boats, uh, we accept that that there is going to, with wooden boats, there's going to be a need for ongoing renewal, and so and so we we do that in order. And and the trade-off here is that our goal is to maintain these in their original context. That is afloat. You pull a boat up out of the water, you put it inside a building, 
you might be able to preserve it, but you've lost something also. Right. And so with, with these boats, we, we do try to maintain them in that original context afloat and sailing because we can learn more about them from, from operating them. Now, you said that you have 10 or 12 that are actually afloat. Are the other ones, are there plans to get them afloat or are there, in certain cases, it's just unrealistic that they would ever go back on the water? That's 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 correct, and and some of them are, are too deteriorated to maintain afloat, and we we preserve those boats um, with all their evidence of wear and repair over the years, and we, we, more like a traditional museum object where it is it is removed from use, it is frozen in time. We've tried we try to halt that further deterioration. Mostly, we make that decision. Part of that decision is dependent on size. If I can put it away in a building, I'm willing to I'm willing to do that. But boats that are 40, 50, 60 feet long, I really don't have a good option for that. And, and, so, we do, and so we do maintain them afloat. And, uh, you know, truly, water, keeping things submerged in the water, the bottom of the boats tend not to be the part that deteriorate. What rots is the part that gets wet and dry and wet and dry in the weather, the decks, the top sides, the cabins. That's the part that... that you really have to keep up with. So, I mean, I was going to ask you about sort of the challenges associated with just maintaining this fleet. How big of a, I guess, a maintenance and a, and a restoration crew does the Maritime Museum have? Well, that, that's that's a that's a, a moving figure. We've uh, we've now got, I believe, three full time shipyard rights and three full time apprentices. But we are in the process of of uh, building that even even further. There, we've got some recent hires coming through the door, and we've got some more, more prospects that we're looking for. In addition to that, we've got two shipwright educators, um, uh, three shipwright educators who are who are teaching boat building skills. Uh, we have a professional captain to operate our vessels, uh, so it's it, it it is quite a crew, and and all that work is happening. It's happening in house because for us, that's that's part of the experience. That's part of the visit. So right, all so. This work yeah, I was going to say, when people come, you can actually see that happening, I guess, from beginning to end. And, and in some cases, you actually, do you build new vessels as well? We do, we do build new vessels as well. And we've got one under construction right now uh, that, that started just two months ago, uh, a new Chesapeake Bay sailing log canoe. Uh, we got a commission to build this. We, we actually built one of these as uh, a couple of years ago as a way of sort of building skills testing out the, what are the problems with constructing a traditional Chesapeake-style log hull. And then we ended up with this commission to build this, this new one this winter. So um, this is one now through April. <laughs> yeah, well, I was going to say, and also you, you mentioned that, it, or it was, it was mentioned in your bio that, do you, now do you have your own sailing log canoe that you're describing here, the Island Bird? Is that yours or...? No, that 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 one belongs to Judge North. Uh, and uh, although I'm I'm bitten by the boat bug and have way too many boats in my personal collection, uh, th- this one this this is sailing on on other people's boats, which is the economical way to go sailing. <laughs> um, so uh, it, it, Judge North uh, has he and his family have four of these sailing log canoes, these traditional oysterman's boats that have uh, grown with ridiculous sailing rigs, really over terribly over rigged, and whole crews of on my boat, eight people on the big boats, up to 15 people get together and uh, try to balance out the force of the wind on these sails, scrambling out on boards over the side. It's, it's, rather, it's rather a crazy thing. You should check it out on YouTube. And you, you have, you have a, a role as the jib tender. Do you want to tell people what that is? 
so yeah, the, so the uh, not all of us have to scramble out over the side. Uh, I trim one of the sails, the jib, which is the forwardmost sail, uh, which is uh, sort of helps to steer the boat, uh, keeps us. I'm responsible for kind of being the eyes in front of the boat. Um, it's it's a, it's a thrill. Sounds like it. Well, we've talked a little bit about the scale and the scope of the museum and and the challenges associated with preserving your both working fleet and then the I guess the dry docked fleet um, and the team that does that. And you've got working full-time professionals keeping this moving. And you guys have recently worked on an interesting project that we wanted to talk about, which was an 1882 Edna E. Lockwood. So why don't you paint the picture? What is, who, who was the Edna? Uh, tell us about this, about this vessel and um, what you guys did with it and all, all that good, good news. Right. So Edna E. Lockwood is an, an oyster dredging bug eye. Uh, the bug eye is a type that that you don't even hear about anymore. We hear about skipjacks in Maryland. It's an official Maryland state boat. But before we devised skipjacks in the 1890s, the the watermen all preferred these these bug eyes, two masts, shallow draft, um, between say 45 and 60 feet on deck, a little bit longer with their bowsprit and the boom hanging out over the stern, uh, but low to the water low decks so that as they're hauling the oyster dredges up on deck, they're, it's less work. You don't have to haul them up too far. Um, and then just wide open decks for, for the catch of oysters. So this is a locally built boat um, constructed on Tillman Island in 1889 by celebrated local boat builder, John B. Harrison, and worked to the bay, uh, really didn't make any, didn't take any particular notice on, uh, or attract any particular notice until the late 1960s when she was the last one left, the last bug eye still dredging for oysters. So she was still dredging in the 60s. That's right. Wow. And uh, she, she was bought by, by a yachtsman who became a member of the Maritime Museum's board. He bought her basically to preserve her, ostensibly as a yacht, but really to preserve her, lend her to the museum every year, and eventually turned the keys over. And give us a sense, how rare is this? I mean, is this the last of her kind, or...? She is the last of her kind. There were some 600 of these boats built. Um, wow. B- better than 600 of these boats built, and it, she was... Uh, she, she's the last of her kind. Now, there's been bug-eye yachts built. There have been... There, local hobbyists built uh, a, bug, a log-bottom bug-eye just a few years ago to show that it could still be done. But of the historic boats, the, bo- the boats that worked... She is the last one, I should say, the last one still to retain her sailing rig because Calvert Marine Museum down in Solomons does have the William B. Tennyson uh, a bug eye that was converted to power, another important boat. But Edna is the last one, the last one still to have her original sailing rig and, and appearance. And was she under sail in the 60s? That's how they were powering her? She was still under sail uh, working that way because Maryland law said that if you were going to get a license to dredge oysters, you must have a sailing vessel to do it. No inboard engines. And that's why that's what kept the skipjacks going in Maryland as well. Uh, this kind of anachronistic use of, of sail in a commercial fishing fleet. Uh, so she survived in part because by keeping her as, as a sail-powered vessel, she could dredge oysters. And that was a, an awfully good way to catch oysters. And so... What state was she in when you began your your project and your work? Well, as, as you as you can imagine, when she came to us uh, in the '60s, uh, she was already in pretty tired shape. And the museum did a project, a 
four-year project in the late 70s to rebuild her essentially from the waterline up. Put her back together, still the old mass, still a lot of the old ironwork and so forth, but but substantial new wood. Sort of introduced some new frames to hold her old log bottom together. And by by the time we started this project, we had a haul out of the water. We really couldn't keep her afloat anymore and embarked on this project essentially to rebuild her bottom. Now, a log bottom is kind of a curious thing. Imagine you're laying a series of, in this case, nine logs side by side, you know, square them up, flatten the sides and join them together and then sort of hewing, you know, carving the boat uh, to shape each individual log to shape and then joining them together side by side. So that's what we did with this project was was to replace her log bottom. We documented each in the overall shape of the boat, but each individual log. We worked with a Park Service Historic American Engineering record to do this, measuring each individual piece so that we could replicate piece by piece all the dimensions with original materials, um, and then join them together in following the original fastening scheme. And where do you get logs to do this? That's a good question. That took us two years. Uh, so she was originally built of, all these boats were built of the local variety of yellow pine, loblolly pine. And we searched all over the eastern United States for these logs, uh, put the call out, and eventually found, because we needed logs of very large dimensions, people don't let pines grow that big anymore. Uh, and we found one over on this, the, the side of a stand in marshier water where that, or marshier land that had been skipped the last three or four times the stand had been cut. Here were these 125-year-old loblolly pines, 10-foot circumference over three-foot diameter. Um, and this time they were going to get cut. And rather than getting them turned into flooring, we said, we need those trees for this project. No other trees will do. Smaller trees just can't do this job. And we got 16 of them. We needed nine. We didn't know if they would all be good. As it turned out, the first nine that we cut into were flawless. And and, and the reason that you need such big logs is that the, the, the finished log, you want the hardwood. You know, if you cut uh, through a tree, those outer rings of the tree are, are a lighter color sapwood. And the inner wood is full of resin, that darker heartwood, much more rot resistant. That's what we needed for Edna's new new bottom. That's material. That's what allowed her original bottom to last 125 years. Was it was heartwood. It was good, durable material. And so the leftover logs, I presume, you're hanging on to for the next project. Well, that's, that's three of them are get, uh, five of them are getting used this uh, this winter for that new log canoe project that we're that we're constructing right now. Um, so they're, they're again, going to uses that they are uniquely suited for. Right. So the work took how long and where are you guys at now? What's the next step? 25 months, just over two years. Uh, and, uh, as I said, we, we, we could have done it faster if we'd thrown more labor at it. We had uh, two shipwrights and three apprentices on this project, um, but we, we love to do this work in front of the public. We love to show people what we're doing. Uh, and, and every project that we do, we, we make sure that this gets just maximum visibility because it's, frankly, it's pretty interesting work. It's pretty engaging work. Uh, like, I love to go through a house that is all torn apart 
as it goes through restoration, when you can really see the bones. Right. That's what we got to do with this. That's what we got to do with this project as well. And uh, she went back in the water ceremonially relaunched at the end of October, October 27th, uh, with great fanfare. Uh, and she is complete, all re-rigged and ready to sail. And so you have a pretty cool Chesapeake Bay tour coming up. Tell us a little bit about that, what the plan is for the year ahead. So uh, now that now that she's done, we'd, we'd love to show her off. And this coming summer, we will be hiring on a, an, an educator and a captain to take her around all around the Chesapeake Bay to ports in Maryland and Virginia. We'll certainly get to uh, populated places like Annapolis and Baltimore and Washington, but also to also to some places where where, where she visited in her history, places like Tillman and Cambridge, that would have would have known her presence uh, decades ago. And this will be outreach for the museum. Talk about talk about oysters historically. Talk about uh, oysters today. Uh, take the historical message of this boat to uh, as a as a mobile exhibition around the bay. Pretty exciting and a great way to get it out there for people to see it, which sort of leads into another question I had, which I think we've talked a little bit about. You mentioned apprentices, you mentioned education outreach. Um, what is the museum doing to sort of engage the next generation in maritime history? I mean, I know it's a challenge for everyone to make sure that this the skills and the interest and all of that is being passed along. Is that a, is that a focus for the Maritime Museum? Absolutely. We're, we're preserving not only the objects, not only the material culture, but the skills needed uh, for this. And so that's been a, a, a huge part of our of our mission is to pass this along to the next generation. So we do take on apprentices, um, many of them graduates of these wooden boat building trade schools scattered around the country. Give them an extra year doing things that you don't learn to do in school. That is work on larger vessels, work on restorations, work on a broader variety of skills than just cutting and fastening wood and give them that, that bit of experience that will help qualify them, that will burnish their skills and their resume for work at, at uh, traditional wooden boat building shops, uh, preservation programs, um, and, and commercial shipyards. And we've, we've actually got a pretty good record of, of, of placing these folks. In fact, we're so confident in that that we've hired a number of our own. Um, so that as we're doing this, this project, uh, for new, building a new log canoe this winter. We've got an apprentice on this, this program. We will be building a new replica of Dove, of the, the 1634 pinnace that brought Maryland settlers to St. Mary City, uh, to, to the Potomac River. And the current replica that, that historic St. Mary City has is just about worn out, built back in the 1970s, and they could re- we could rebuild this one for this, but they want to they want to do some different things. So there's new research. We're going to be building a new dove here. We're hiring on some of our own apprentices to pass this, these skills along. They will get um, they're all they're they're where we need them for these skills to do this very high profile project for for another partner in preservation and across the state. Yeah, that's pretty exciting. We'll we'll have to maybe follow up on that um, because I know I've heard about that project and didn't put the dots together to realize that you guys would be building it, but it makes perfect sense and perhaps is a good capstone to this conversation to 
um, talk about, you know, the opportunities not only to talk more with you in the future, but also for reasons for people to go and visit the Chesapeake Bay Maritime Museum to see projects like that underway, uh, which I should say, if people are interested in visiting or coming to the state or live here in Maryland, um, where can they find out more information? Go Certainly go to our website, cbmm.org. Check us out on Facebook because we are posting there all the time. We're showing you what is going on today because it is always changing. And this winter, you have until March 1st to see our Mapping the Chesapeake uh, exhibit. You have uh, until the spring to see this construction of this new log canoe. Uh, and as soon as that's done, we will be starting in on the Dove. So um, those, those are the places to check us out. Never a dull day at the Chesapeake Bay Maritime Museum. No, indeed. <laughs> so, Pete, before we let you go, the most difficult question to ask for anyone who loves history or historic places, what is Pete Lesher's favorite historic site or place? You know, that's like asking a parent what their favorite child is. Um, I, I'm, I'm, I tend to be a bit partial to uh, the Eastern Shore and to St. Michael's, but good grief. I love Maryland's State House. I love Easton's Third Haven Friends Meeting House. I, I love floating exhibits, too. I've got a particularly soft spot for, uh, uh, for, these, maritime, for these maritime collections. And, and uh, you know, the Edna E. Lockwood, she's got a really soft spot in my heart. Well, I think that's a, a fantastic place to end it. And three good answers, even though we only asked for one. Pete Lesher, always the overachiever. <laughs> Thank you for everything that you're doing out there. It's good to know that Maryland's maritime history is in good hands. Good luck and uh, calm seas or, or whatever the saying is in the, uh, in the maritime world. Uh, Thank you. <laughs> in, in the years ahead. Thanks again, Pete. We'll talk to you again soon. Thank you, Nick. Thanks for listening to PreserveCast. To dig deeper into this episode's show, notes, and all previous episodes, visit PreserveCast.org. You can also find us online at Facebook and Twitter at PreserveCast. This program was supported by the Historic Preservation Education Foundation. PreserveCast is produced by Preservation Maryland in Baltimore City. Thanks again for your support, and remember to keep preserving.